Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, we're to the section of this letter where there's practical instruction how to live now that we're new in Christ, now that we're born again, now that we've been united as one people, Christ's body, how ought we to live in verses 1 through 16 essentially say in unity, and unity comes when there's maturity, and maturity comes when truth and love come together as, as the basis of what we do. So let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And he gave apostles, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I am eager to preach this message uh, this morning to you for many reasons. I'm always eager to preach what I've seen in God's Word and, and, I'm, and I'm excited to share it. But I would say in a especially so way, just in the providence of God, uh, the unique circumstances we find ourselves in as the body of Christ. The fact that we're just going through a, a book of the Bible and, and, and working through it as we go. And this message at this time for our congregation, I think, is incredibly important. As we think about what ministry is, as we think about how we fit into the life of the church, what the purpose of our lives are. And so as we come to this text that essentially points us to unity. So, so how do you walk in a way worthy of the gospel of Christ? That's the question that was posed at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. And if you have to give one word, you would say unity. How do you get to unity? Well, you got to be mature. Well, how do you get to maturity? Love, loving acts from gifted people that is informed by truth, that's how you get there. That's how a body matures itself and becomes more 
Christ-like. One of the things that became clear to me the longer I've walked with the Lord is that when good theology, many people just don't have good theology. I mean, I I was raised in a Christian family in a Baptist church that loved the Bible, but there was so much I didn't know. When, when, when good theology was presented to me, and by the grace of God, I was given taste buds for it and a hunger for it. I went from someone who had graduated college with a religious studies degree and maybe read three books. I don't even know if I fully read three books. To in the course of one year, I read through 17 books on my own, not being in school. My mom says, I don't know what's going on, but I know God's doing something. Thank God that I was given a hunger for truth in God's Word. And there was drastic changes in my personal life as I was encountered God in a way I'd never encountered God, and I saw myself in a way I'd never seen myself before. And I thought, well, surely this is going to be the biggest jump, the biggest change in my life was this moment when God was gracious enough to do this. But then at the end of my seminary education, I took a biblical counseling class. And it was like all this theology, all this knowledge, all all this truth Through that class, through God's Word, getting down to the thoughts and intentions of my heart, it was almost like a door was opened for this truth to get down from my head into my heart. And once again, it was like a new time in my life where I'm like, this change is massive. All this truth I've learned, yes, it began to change me then, but I, th- I think pride also began to grow. Frustration as I looked around with others that didn't know the Scripture as well as I now knew it. And what was needed was to see God's Word not merely as, here's what you ought to do, but also as a mirror as a sword that cuts down to the thoughts and intentions of my heart to show me who I really am in light of the glory of God and apart from the grace of God. So this idea of truth that is wedded with love brings about Christ-likeness. Who's Christ? He's truth. He's he's never said anything that wasn't true. He, He is the embodiment of truth itself. And yet he's full of grace. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. He's not 50 50. 
When they're wedded together, maturity comes. That's what we see in this text. In what I have before me is an extended intro of God's love from other places in the Scripture that hopefully just helps our text flow out to us in a way that is powerful in your own heart. What does it look like when someone has zeal and passion separated from truth? In Romans 10, Paul speaks of his fellow Jews who were passionate about their religion. But here's what he said in Romans 10.1. This is maybe in our contemporary day, you, you might say this might be the passionate Catholic friend that you have. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He says, my unsaved Jewish brothers, they have a zeal for God, but they think they're going to be accepted before God according to their own works. They thought righteousness comes from the law, and they miss the fact that righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ, the only one that has kept the law. So they had a zeal and a passion, but it wasn't according to knowledge. Jesus said this in Mark 7, 6. He said to the Pharisees, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Pharisees missed it on both ends. They didn't have the truth and they didn't have the heart. They were passionate they were zealous, but it didn't come from a sincere heart. And they took the inventions of men and called it the Word of God. Said, this is what God says. These are people we would say, they're passionate, religious people. And Paul was praying that they may be saved. In James 3, James says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Who has truth? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So this is someone that claims to be wise, but what's going on in their heart is bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. And that person is being false to the truth, even if they say true things out of 
their mouth. And it gets more scary in James. It says, this wisdom is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You think about that. It wasn't just missing the mark. It was demonic. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. See, the people that were causing division in the church were people that actually had good theology about food sacrificed to idols. They actually knew that all food was clean, but they were divisive. Why? Listen to what he says. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So true knowledge, apart from love, puffs up into arrogance, turns ugly. Then he says, if any of you imagines he knows something, yet does, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he's already been known by God. The grace of God has already had an effect on his life. And then in 1 John, you don't have to turn here. I'm just kind of giving these to you rapid succession. I just want you to feel the weight of this. In 1 John, the goal of the letter is to help people know if they really are born again, whether they're truly saved. And one of the things he keeps pointing to is love for God and love for neighbor. In 1 John 4.19, he says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. I want you to think about that. We tend to think the opposite. Well, it's hard to love my brothers and sisters in Christ because I see them. John's actually says the opposite. He says, if you can't love the people who are right in front of you, your brothers and sisters in Christ who you've seen, how can you love God who you have not seen? There can never be a disconnection between, oh, I'm passionate for God, but I could really we would never say we could care less for the church, but what does our life say? See, that's, that's, that's the question. And then he says, and this commandment we've heard from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. They're inherently connected. And then 1 John 5, 1, he says, everyone, um, are, it, 1 John 4, 19, he says, I'm sorry. 1 John 4, 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that he sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. One more. First uh, John 5, 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who is born of the Father. Every born again believer. You see? And then he says, by this we know that we love the children of God. What is he going to say? It might surprise you. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. See, you have the love of God and the love of His truth is the way we know if we love one another. All these things are inextricably connected to one another so that we can't separate them. And if we do separate them, these words ought to cut down at a heart level, bring about repentance, bring about, Lord, the prayer that God would know my heart. And then I think of Romans 8, this amazing text, Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If sword can, then we're all in trouble. We can be killed. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure, now get this, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, that's the love you've been given. Now here's my question. Who or what ought to be able to separate you from loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? If Paul says, the love of Christ has been poured into my heart, that's how you can understand my life. It's not my love. It's Christ's love. So if that's the character of the love that is poured into believers, then whom or what can separate you, can keep you, from being present with your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's the question as we come to this text that points us to the purpose of our life. Already in Ephesians, first three chapters, it's all what Christ has done for us. Love has been a theme in here. In Ephesians 2, speaking of our new birth, it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then in verse 4 it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So when we weren't lovable, his love was so great 
He brought about the new birth. And then in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace between Jew and Gentile, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of the flesh by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create it himself one new man. Our text is talking about the collective body of Christ, not individuals. That's not the point. One new man, arch enemies, Jews and Gentiles, now unified. So he says, so making peace and reconciled us both to God in one body through, through the cross. So here's what Christ did for you, Christian. He reconciled you with God and he reconciles you even to your arch enemies. Peace, unity, unity with God, unity with one another. This is called Christ's workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Our text is talking about those good works. How ought we to walk now that we're one new man in Christ? One more thing I want to point out in Ephesians 3. Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to his power at work within us. You see, we're described as people who are, have roots. We're rooted and we're grounded in love. We're dominated by love. Who is a Christian? Someone that has been overtaken by a type of love that surpasses knowledge. All right? So let's, Look at our text. Back in verse 7 of Ephesians 4. Well, I, actually, let's, let's look at how we're supposed to walk. Verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity, love and unity. How am I supposed to walk in love and unity? In humility, patience, bearing with one another. He says that because you're difficult and because I'm difficult. That's what's needed in the body of Christ, all right? And then in verse 7, we have all this unity. It's in one Christ, in one spirit, in one gospel. But then there's diversity in the body. But grace was given to each one of us. That's distinction according to the measure of Christ's gift. So God, Jesus Christ, gifts the body of Christ where he chooses how he gifts you and to the measure you're given it. And it's not just like we talked about, it's not just like I have a serving gift or I have a speaking gift. No, how, 
However you're gifted by the Spirit, it's called a gift singular, even though it might be a smattering. There's no one just like you. And then we're told in verse 11 that he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints. That word equip, remember from last week, it means perfect, to bring to perfection the saints. That's a high calling. So these word ministers, apostles and prophets that laid the foundation, we don't have apostles and prophets anymore. They laid the foundation. The evangelists and teachers are teaching on top of that foundation that's already been laid. Jesus Christ was the cornerstone of that foundation laying. They're to equip, teach the Word of God so that the saints will be matured for the work of ministry. For the work of ministry. So the charge of this message is this, love one another in truth and grow in maturity together. And point one in your notes is the purpose of ministry is right there in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up of the body of Christ. Now he's going to unpack what that looks like. The purpose of your life, Christian, Yes, it's to glorify God. How do you glorify God? Walk in a way that's worthy of the one who gave you new life. Well, what am I to do? The work of ministry. Now, children, listen to me. If you're a Christian, whether you're four years old, five years old, six years old, seven years old, Jesus Christ has gifted you to love and serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this text says you are just as important as the oldest person in this room or the smartest person in this room. And the surprising thing, children, is the Bible calls you guys, the ministers, not me. You guys are the ministers. The church body is the one who does the ministry. The shepherd teachers equip the saints, teach the word of God, feed the flock so that they can be nourished and strong to be able to function in a way that Christ meant for them to function for the good of the body. And so the purpose of the ministry is to build up the body. This shouldn't surprise us. You know, what did Jesus say about his own life? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It shouldn't surprise us that our life is meant to be given away. Or in Acts 20, 35, where we read, in all these things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. We are meant to give to the body of Christ 
in our own unique way how God has gifted us. Now, many wonder, and I've already gotten questions, you know, many wonder what their gift is that they've been given and how they can know it. And surprisingly, the Bible, as much as it talks about gifts and the fact that Christ gave them, it doesn't really spend any time showing you how to figure out what your gift is. But what the Bible, what God's Word, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians, for example, is he's very clear on what your gift is for. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4, he says this, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. And then he says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So whatever spiritual gift the Lord has given you, it is not for you. It is not to give you validation as to the fact, fact of, oh, I matter. Yes, the text says you matter, but that's not the point. The point of your gift is for the common good of the body, which means if your gift is used in any other way, it self-destructs. It's not what it's made for. And so I think the way you discover what your giftedness is, is you have to be with the body of Christ. You have to love the body of Christ sincerely. And if you're with them and you love them, then what you'll naturally do is you'll see needs, ways the body of Christ can be built up or encouraged or funded or however you want to see that. But when love's there, your heart will start to seek to meet those needs. And then when you're with the body of Christ and you're present and you're loving the body of Christ, if then you turn to your brothers and sisters in Christ and ask them, do you see any ways God has kind of uniquely gifted me? Like if I'm going to channel my time and my efforts, what, what, what would seem most fruitful since the days are short? I think you'll begin to know. But it's all based on this question. What can keep you? What can keep you from the ones you can see? And unfortunately, if we're honest, we all have things. We all isolate for different reasons. Usually it's to protect ourselves. Usually, usually it's thinking about how I've been hurt or, or in a way I might look stupid or, or usually we're looking in, which is a death knell to the gifts that are meant to be looking out. And so... To the question, what is my gift? I, I think the answer is be, the, be here with one another. That doesn't mean just in church when church is in service. That means in each other's homes, loving one another, knowing what's going on in each other's lives. 
And so we see the purpose is to build up the body. Verse 13, we see the duration until we all attain. So no one's going to be perfected. No church is perfect till Christ returns, right? We won't be without sin until we die or Christ returns. So this ministry isn't like done next month unless Christ returns next month. It's until we all attain, attain what? The, to the unity. Someone might say, well, I thought we're unified in Christ. You are. But it isn't, isn't it interesting? It, it's we're unified now but not fully. There can be degrees of unity. We are, Jew and Gentile are reconciled. We are reconciled to God, but we can be more unified. That's why he says, until we attain the unity of the faith. And in fact, uh, back in Verse 3 of Ephesians 4, he says, eager to maintain the unity. So we need to attain unity, and we need to maintain unity. Now, we can understand why that's so, right? We still have our flesh that is at war with the Spirit of God inside us, and, and, and so every Christian feels the battle. Sometimes we walk in our flesh, which produces corruption. Other times we walk with the Spirit, which produces eternal life, God's life. So he says three things here. Until we attain the u- to the unity of the faith, we believe the same thing. We believe the words of God. That song we sang, both firm of and faithful are your word. The word of God is not like jelly that some trickster gets to move around for his own benefits. It is firm. That's that's what we were singing. The word of God is clear. That's why the beginning of 1 John, one of the main opponents in the church was people who said, yeah, we know what Jesus taught us, but you also need a message from an angel. You also need this uh, mystical knowledge that comes from God. That's why John starts his, gospel, or his letter out in 1 John 1. He says, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, that's objective, that's clear, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we've seen it. It wasn't some vision. We we have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, with which we have seen, we have heard, we also proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So this clear word that has been seen and touched and spoken, Jesus Christ himself has been preached to the people so the people can have fellowship with one another. No unity comes apart from the objectively clinging to Christ. And then he goes on to say, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete in our fellowship. 
And then he says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. He's not some mystery. God is light. He is clear. He is seen in Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation. Scripture is clothed, closed, and now we're building on top of it. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord are contained in his excellent work. We have something to stand on that unifies us. That's why he says, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We can learn more of Christ. We can learn more of our Father, whom Christ is the exact image of, who came in the flesh, who didn't come secretly sending special angels to certain people, but he came clearly and decisively. And then he says, till we all attain to the mature manhood. This is just maturity. So we come to maturity by believing true things of Christ. And thirdly, and I, and I just want to say this, to mature manhood, it's what that's grabbing is till we all attain. So the idea here isn't that, well, I'm a, Sam Ellison is going to come to mature manhood myself. I don't know what my brothers and sisters are doing. But no, it's, the idea is the body of Christ growing to mature manhood together. And thirdly, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Perfect the saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry that they mature up. How mature? To the fullness of the stature of Christ himself. That's what we're called to, right? That's what you're left down here for, to be conformed into the image of Christ. And it happens. This text says the surprising thing is you can't do this on your own. In fact, we're going to see in this text that I can only rise to a certain point of maturity in Christ dependent on you and you dependent on me. Now, you might not like that, but you tell me how the text doesn't say this. So let's look at it. Let's look at the failure of ministry. So why does the body need to be built up to maturity, to the stature of the fullness of Christ? So that something would stop. Failure in ministry would stop. Here, here's failure. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So God gave the church evangelists, shepherds, to teach the word of God so that the church can mature itself, use their spiritual gifts, and as the body grows, the trickster, the one who uses the word of God and twists it 
will no longer have an effect on your life. You won't be t- the illustration is a, bo- a boat out at sea in a storm gets tossed this way and gets tossed this way. And the waves in the illustration are different doctrines. You know, everyone's preaching Christ. The question is, is what are they preaching about Christ? Is it true? Is it a Christ that says one thing one day and another thing another day? Is he like a mist? You got to call him down? And so mature immaturity is described as those who, whatever they heard last, they get tossed this way, and then they get tossed that way, and they can never make up their mind with what they believe and with what is true. And where there's immaturity, there's not love, and where there's not love, there's not unity. Where we're not connected in our beliefs of Christ and what the Word of God says, that'll have an effect on the end product, which will be division and infighting in the church. You see, when Christians fight with one another and the Word of God is brought forth and people love God and want to put themselves under the Word of God rather than win their own battle, then there's opportunity for unity. But as we hold on to selfish ambition and pride, we're demonic no matter how wise we think we are or no matter how right we got the Bible verse. And so failure in ministry is described as a weak doctrinal foundation where the church is easily deceived, gullible, lacking self-control. Think of the temptations in the wilderness. How did... How did Satan come after Christ? He twisted the word of God. What did Christ do? He spoke the truth of the word of Christ back to the devil, and he won the spiritual temptation. How? With the word of God. He could have said, I'm the son of God, but that's not the authority he used. The authority he used was the scripture. Why did he use the scripture? Because it's firm. It's authoritative. It's true. And so, we see failure in ministry. Now let's see the foundation of ministry. Foundation or fruit of ministry. I couldn't decide. I guess I used foundation. Rather, speaking truth and love. So, listen to Stott here. I think this is helpful. I know we're at the end of the sermon, but just hang on here. Here's what John Stott says. He says, what Paul calls for is the balanced combination of the two. Speaking the truth in love is not the best rendering of this of his expression. For the Greek verb makes no reference to our speech. It literally means truthing in love. So someone might look at this and say, okay, the main most important gift in the church is speaking gifts. This text actually doesn't use the word speak in the Greek. What it means is as the body is using their unique giftedness, they're, they're doing it while truthing. <laughs> the, the motivation behind it is the truthfulness of the Word of God, which is sincere love in their hearts that is motivating it. Even the most menial tasks. I want you, I want you to think about this for a minute. 
Let me first say this. Without the truth of Christ informing and motivating all of our efforts and our love and service to one another, those efforts will be done in vain and they won't lead to maturity and they won't lead to unity. So any effort that isn't informed by truth won't, no, no matter how, how much was done, no matter how much service was done, it won't lead to truth or unity or love. How so? Here's, here's my example. Let's say someone sees the toilets are dirty at the new building. By the way, they are. And they say, that's something I can do. But as they start to do it, they start to say, how come no one in my church does this? How come it's always me that does this? You know what? I'm getting sick and tired of doing this. But let's say they clean every toilet. You think the church is being built up in love even though the job's getting done? No, because that attitude is going to come out. And it's going to spread about the church. So no matter how menial the task, if truth of Christ's love for us, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us, then it won't lead to maturity. But anything down to the littlest task, if it's done out of love for the glory of God and love of brother and sister in Christ, it'll lead for maturing in the body of Christ. So I love the way Stott put this together. He says this, Thank God there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch. Their muscles begin to ripple and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They they are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love. But in order to do so, they are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of revelation. Both these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold together, or to hold the two together, which should not be difficult for the spirit-filled believers, since the Holy Spirit is himself the spirit of truth, and his first fruits are the fruits of love. There is no other route than this to fully mature Christianity. That's, that's, that's the only route. And I, I'm half sad quoting Stott here because late in Stott's life, he let go of the traditional view of hell. One of the central tenets of the Christian faith. And I think he probably did it in the name of love. It, it, it's hard to preach an eternal hell. And I remember John Piper saying how he just weeped, gotten so much help from Stott throughout the years and on the cross. And so none of us can begin to isolate and 
from one another are, are led up. Even the greatest ones, you, you can see, fade away at the end of their life as they don't hold on to the central tenets of the faith. So let's just finish the text. So we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. That's Christ. It's only when we're looking to Christ that we're unified. Into Christ from whom the whole body, the illustration is the human body here, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Here's the key. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part is working properly, the body grows. Now, I spent about an hour reading about the human body. I'm not going to... All I can tell you is go read about how the human... Just Google it. How does the human body work together? Everything from the cardiovascular and respiratory systems... Breathe in through your nose, oxygen comes in, gets infused in the blood, blood goes out, that oxygen's given to other organs, and then you have digestive and excretory system. The good things are kept, the bad things are let go. And then you have the immune system, you have your hormone system, whatever that word is, you have your skin system and your nervous system. If any of these quit working. It's done. And the illustration he's saying is the body grows to maturity when each part is working properly. So, all right, six-year-olds, this is a 50-minute sermon. And if you're still listening, that's a miracle. But listen to me. I can only grow to the extent of, part, part of my maturity is based on whether you Use the gift Christ has given you to love the body, to love me, so that this is true. You can only grow to a point of maturity as far as the body you're in grows. So the reality is, is if, if you were in a more mature church in Christ, you'd probably be more mature, more loving. But what has God called us to? He's called us to use our gifts, to build up the body of Christ. Now, I want to end with this. You look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the family that lasts forever. Jesus Christ said he came to separate earthly families. There's some families that are split over those who trust Christ and those who don't. But this right here is what Jesus is doing. This is his body. He gifted it the way he wanted, with the measure he wanted. And we are called in our new lives to value this family, I, I don't think it's too strong to say, more than anything, more than your job, more than your hobbies, the focus of your thinking, who you're going to be with forever. When you face Christ, were you faithful? What, what, what are you faithful with? with the stewardship he's given you to love one another.